Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learned to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! Boom. G'day team. So joining us today is Glenn Azar, a man who spends his life living out his passion, exploring the world and helping people to reach their full potential. Glenn, like myself and Trent, is a former soldier. He's a mindset coach, host of the Building Better Humans podcast and the founder of Project 180, which is a gym based in Brisbane. He's also the founder of Adventure Professionals. Now, this is an Australian adventure company. It's led by a team of skilled former soldiers. They facilitate professional adventure experiences in some of the most amazing parts of the world. And just get a load of some of the locations that they visit. So Glenn has led trips to the Everest Base Camp, Kilimanjaro, the Aussie Ten Peaks, Mount Kinabalu, and obviously the Australian Outback, which is awesome. And that's just to name some of the places they go. He's led over 80 trips across the Kokoda Track in Papua New Guinea. And I mean, that is an incredibly dangerous piece of land, really, isn't it? Extremely hot temperatures during the day, freezing cold nights, constant risk of tropical diseases. You can only imagine what the World War II soldiers went through. And and Glenn takes people through that experience to show them at least the environmental factors. He's proven that he's able to tackle any crisis with his strong leadership skills, and he helps others to do the same. I'm really thrilled to be talking to Glenn today about his incredible adventures and what he's learned about being a leader during a crisis. We cover a lot of topics. Some of them we go really in depth. Some of them we sort of skim over. The piece around toxic masculinity, I think, is well worth a listen. Um, We have some of the same opinions in that area. I know we're going to receive some feedback with this, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Let's have a narrative about it. Let's talk about it. Happy to jump on messages and and discuss your point of view compared to ours. G'day, Glenn. Great to be uh, chatting with you today. Where does the podcast find you today? Mate, it finds me sitting in my little headquarters, my gym and adventure headquarters in Brisbane. Nice. Whereabouts in Brisbane? Oh, we've all got we've all got one of those at Gym yeah. Adventure Headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds way cooler than it is. It's like the Bat Cave. Yeah, whereabouts in Brisbane is your gym? 
So we're in Newstead, and for anyone that knows Brisbane, we're like literally 800 metres from the Brecky Creek Hotel, to give you a good reference point. Nice. I love the Brecky Creek Hotel. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yep. It's one of one of Brisbane's worst vegetarian restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, uh, look, first question. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So you know, what's your background? How did you get to where you are today? So, yeah, so it's a great question and it's quite involved obviously mm. I'm in my sort of final lap around the, the earth before I hit the halfway mark so I'm you know a year off turning 50 so I've got a bit of life experience now I guess but I started as a young like I moved out of home really young so 14 14 and a half just a you know a father that was a heavy drinker and quite violent to be honest no sob story that was just my life back then and like a lot of young blokes with that sort of story I fell into the military so at the age of 17 the first Gulf War kicked off I was a young guy that had a bit of a chip on his shoulder and thought that I was built for war. Little did I know what that actually entailed at that age. And I joined the military. Now, that first Gulf War ended before I'd even finished recruit training. So, (laughs) but you know, I thought that that was going to be a short term thing. And 17 years later, I left there. I joined the infantry. So I joined 8-9 Infantry Battalion. I injured myself at a very young age and ended up being given no option but to go into another corps. The military back in those days just told you where you were going. And I was offered two things, medical corps to be an administrator, and I'm not good at administration even today, or medical corps to be a medic. I didn't like either option, but I took the medic option, which turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. I deployed my de- Deployments overseas into Bougainville in 98, into East Timor under Interfet in 99. As a medic, as a paramedic, I was actually in charge of running an evacuation cell in Timor out of Suai. So I had six ambulances and two helicopters under my command at that time, and I was the 2IC. And my specialty is aviation medicine, so Iroquois and then later Blackhawk evacuation. And then coming back from Timor, the Army actually paid to put me through a nursing degree. I had to do all the usual sit the officer course and all that sort of stuff, and uh, became a registered nurse in that role, and then got out in 2009 and that's I guess to continue that story that led me into working in the adventure space so we run Kokoda Track Everest Base Camp Kilimanjaro we go to Russia South America and that all came off the back of as a medic in the army you can't just sit around and not do your job right you've got to be you know practically doing stuff all the time so I'd go and work in the hospitals I'd go and work for AMBOs and a couple of blokes who were had been in the military were taking a group of executives from Westpac across the Kokoda track back then no one was really doing Kokoda so it was considered a bit dangerous a bit scary and they just asked for safety parameters one of them was to have an aviation qualified medic that came across the unit that I was at at the time up in Townsville I put my hand up went on that and that's when I first kind of got a look into life outside of the military because I love the military and realized that this is something I could see myself doing long term and and I fell into that. From there, I've generally working in the personal development space these days in what we call the Building Better Humans Project. So we own a gym in Brisbane, we run an adventure company and everything's built on the pillars of fitness mindset and adventure. And literally that's from, like I view our family as having a high performance background in the sense that I've got four children. One of those has climbed Mount Everest and then I've got a 17 year old son who's autistic and intellectually impaired. So we've kind of got the full gamut within our household. So at 17 years of age, he's mentally between the age of four and five. He can't wipe his own backside or, or shower himself. And then we've got this young woman who climbs Mount Everest at the age of 19. So that's given me a lot of life experience, which has helped me to you know, lead other people in personal development from teenagers right through to corporate sporting teams. And I'm even doing some work back with the military at the moment. So that's kind of a snapshot of what gets me to here well having a, a son oh mate you're a saint i mean how hard must that be i don't i don't know if that's hard or not if that in fact i don't even know if that's the right words to use i'm sorry but i just can't imagine how difficult that would be with someone who's almost a, a grown man to be well 
Yeah, and mate, I'll be really honest. It's my weakness in life is him. His name's Christian. As in, when I say weakness, I love the guy. I love him like more than anyone in mm. the whole family really gets around him and looks after him. But I've been through phases in my life where I thought I was a tough guy. I boxed, I kickboxed, I still trained fighters. I was in the military, alpha. Mm. And then you have a son who goes through that. I've only got one son. And, you know, there's a bit of self-reflection driving past schools and seeing kids kicking footies and playing cricket, knowing that your son will never do that. Yeah. That was a bit hard to take. Dropping him off at school, particularly in his early days. So in, in, in 12 years of school, he got to grade one maths and grade one term one English, you know, so he, he just can't do what a lot of normal people do. And so I would drop him into school and I'd get really emotional sometimes, which, you know, wasn't cool to admit back in my younger days because mm. I was faced full on with the fact that this kid is disabled. He has multiple disabilities and that's his life. And there were plenty of times where, you know, for his sake, I'd almost wished that he hadn't been born for his own sake. Like I thought life was really unfair wow. for him. And that's taken a lot of time for me to mentally resolve my feelings around that. He's 17, but we've been told because he's got more than one disability that they don't know, but his life expectancy could be somewhere between the age of 30 and 40. And then mm. I think, well, he could be halfway through his life. I'm not ready to face not having him around so it's really yeah. yeah you think you're tough until you're faced with situations like that to be honest and everything else i've done in my life is now put into perspective and context of going well you know other people might view it as tough but the toughest part of our day is dealing with him having a meltdown that goes for three hours at home self-harming which he sometimes does but it's also giving us a good barometer for my girls to say you need to do whatever you do to the best of your ability because you almost owe it to kids like christian that will never have that opportunity so that's been a really good benchmark for us as well i think yeah. Well, that is an amazing story. And as Bram said, I can't imagine how you work through that. How is managing the effects and self-reflecting on your own thoughts and feelings around that, how has that assisted you in being the overnight success as you talk about? I think it's given me perspective. Yeah, it certainly, uh, you put, know, my, it certainly put my life in a perspective. I feel yeah. guilty saying that right now, but I'm, I've suddenly felt a lot more grateful for my two boys. So you know, I'm sure Christian brings all sorts of joy as well, like in, in amazing moments, but yeah. Well, here's the thing. I drop him when he was at school. He was at an Aspley Special School in Brisbane. There's 131 kids at that school. He's one of the better kids because he can verbalise and tell you what's going on with him most of the time. And there are kids there that were fully disabled. So these kids haven't done anything wrong. They've just been born that way. So Christian's mother and I, both fit and healthy, neither of us drink, smoke. She was in the army for nine years. I was in for 17 years. So it's easy to initially go through the victim statement of this shouldn't have happened to us. This should happen to someone else because we've done all the right things. And then you've got to get over yourself a little bit in that context and go, this does happen to people. It was a great equaliser for the girls because my, I'd love to have grandkids, right? But my older girls aren't in a hurry because they realise that it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Things do go wrong. You literally can't put your finger on it and say, you know, we were big drinkers, we're out partying with drugs, but we weren't any of those things. And then the other thing that puts in perspective for me is when he was at school, I'd drop him off and there were families from very low socioeconomic backgrounds who also had these kids to deal with, who didn't have the maybe the support network or the mental strength that I'd built through a military career, etc. And I used to think, I wonder what's going on for them. We were living in Toowoomba, it's freezing cold in the middle of winter, and I'd watch parents walking their kids into school with no shoes on. The parents, that is, have got no shoes on. But the kids were always really well dressed and really well looked after, these special needs kids. And I think, how hard would it be not to be able to afford a pair of shoes for yourself? And I was in some support groups on Facebook, etc. And to watch what these parents were going through, where just life is a struggle. And I mm. understood why people give up on life, to be honest. And, and it just gave me a different drive to go, you know, we've all got challenges. Like all of us are men that can be strong and powerful and communicate really well. Well, not everyone has that. 
So now there's this onus on me or I feel this drive to try and impart hope on other people, if nothing else, that there's something better around the corner for them if they can just stick with it and deal with it and make some adjustments. And, and I can't be a victim. Like I've had a very good life. Tough in some people's eyes in some areas, but I've had a very good life and I definitely can't complain about it. That's an incredible reflection. Look, I'd be really interested now to hear about the various projects that you've got going on and and see where this sort of background has taken you to. You've spoken about building better humans often. What's that about and and what makes up your Building Better Humans project? It started out as a podcast back in 2016. I was meeting a lot of interesting people. I was running the adventure business and I had a gym. And my original gym back in Toowoomba, I was like every other PT. It was about bring people in, smash them, try and make them physically fitter and stronger. If they weren't turning up to sessions regularly, I'd kind of get into them. You're not committed. You're not. And and now I'm a bit older. I have an understanding that people have life. They have things going on and we're just one piece of it. And I started to understand that the biggest piece of the puzzle for anyone is mindset. So most people come to the gym either for a physical release so that they can give themselves some mental strength as well. And when they're struggling, the thing that's probably they're struggling with is their mindset. I started to really go down that road with the podcast. When it started, I thought it was a business podcast. First 20 episodes, I'm interviewing entrepreneurs and business people and how they got successful. To be honest, no different than that podcast out there. Then I started thinking, businesses are made up of people. Our customers are people. The people that we employ are people. What if we just became better humans instead of focusing on having a better business? What if money wasn't the bottom line, but a really cool byproduct of us being really good at what we did and starting to impact more people? You basically answered a question rather than, I mean, I'm so frustrated with all these dudes who think, hey, I'm going to start a podcast and they don't understand the amount of work and effort and the fact that you're not really getting paid very much for it. So shout out to everyone out there thinking about, you know, starting their own podcast. Good on you. But if you're not answering a question, and at least you worked out really early, I need to answer a question. Yeah, I thought I'd do 20 episodes, if I'm really honest. Well, now I'll do three episodes a week, and I don't talk numbers much either, but we'll do anywhere from thirty-five to 50,000 downloads a month because we got into the marketplace really early because we're not known, we're not famous. But mm-hmm. I do really concentrate on content. What I went to, some years ago I spoke to a guy called Tim Reed and he runs a podcast which is a marketing podcast it's been 12 years old in Australia one of Australia's oldest and he said to me I reckon you should do less interviews with people and more of just you talking because occasionally what would happen is you guys may have experienced this a guest falls through for some reason and I was recording podcasts weekly at this stage so if a guest fell through I've got no podcast this week and I understand the the one key to success that most people don't understand is to be persistent and consistent you've just got to keep showing up and so I wanted to be consistent with the podcast and thought I just in it just did a couple of episodes which were just me or sometimes I've done two or three episodes with myself and Alyssa my daughter because every time I interview that girl she blows me away with something she comes out with she's an amazing thinker she's very quiet but you know why she achieved what she Can did you but just take take down her details yeah yeah, no, we're, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah get her on next her. season <laughs> yeah, we'll get her on next oh, season yeah, you, def- you definitely should speak to her because she's 24 years of age yeah and interestingly feels like she hasn't done enough and you go mate like fair yeah, income, like she's she is an achiever yeah. yeah, and we'll have conversations on the podcast where she'd come out with something and I'll go, wow, where did that come from? And it really blows my mind. And so I would interview her and occasionally I would do one just on my own. This guy said to me, I think you should do more just on your own. What I started doing, and the reason we get such a high number of downloads is I started releasing three episodes a week of 10 minutes or less. And they were just bite-sized chunks of something that I believe are of really high value from experiences I'm actually having or have had, people I've spoken to, something that happens this week. You guys, these days, we have a roadcaster, I can record 
record and upload immediately. From the days where when I first started a podcast, I'd send it to a sound guy to take six weeks to get it back. People would come in and go, mate, love the podcast this morning. I couldn't remember what it was. It was six weeks ago. Yeah. Um, now I'm doing it much more consistently. And I understood that people have really short attention spans. That's a problem, but also I can play to that by giving them short bite-sized things that they can listen to on the car on their drive to work that maybe just makes them take a different energy into work or into home and then that creates a different level of success for them that's what I really became about so the number of downloads sounds high but I'm releasing a lot of episodes whereas if I was doing one a week of course the numbers would be nothing like that yeah. but yeah it's still I'm pretty happy with where it's got to yeah so that evolved uh, I guess Trini if I could just sorry jump in sure, but no, no, so that it. started as a podcast and then it evolved into what we're doing today so we built a website called the buildingbetterhumansproject.com.au literally three weeks ago. That hasn't existed until just now. And that came out of COVID in the sense that we lost 93% of our income last year because the adventure business closed down. No overseas travel, no Kokoda track crossings, no anything. This is my opportunity to be resilient and lead my team or to be full of it. And I didn't want to be full of it because we can't just talk about this stuff when things are golden. Mm. When we get challenged, we've got to step up because we know we're being assessed by people that have followed us, that have believed in us. Just started getting in and talking to my team and saying, right, this is what we've got to do. And we've got to pivot a little bit as much as we all hate that word. I'd been asked by companies. I did some work with the Terry White Kenmark group. They asked me, would you be interested in helping us work with young boys? Because we're trying to break into the men's health space because women are really good at looking after their health. Yeah. You know, teenagers, they're going through puberty, periods, sexual activity, pregnancy, the other end of that journey as they get older, they look after themselves. Men don't. Mm. So I did some talks for them. They then asked if we'd run some camps for teenage boys. I said, I'd love to, don't have time. All of a sudden, COVID hits and they rang me and they said, we reckon you've got a bit of time now. And I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I've got no money, but I've got heaps of time. And so we started running boys camps. That then led into running girls camp. And so now Building Better Humans Project came from being a passion project as a podcast into an actual real thing. Through that period, I was doing, I guess, some of what you guys do, but more as a hobby, as in I was going into corporations and groups and talking leadership, mm. resilience, but I was only doing it in between adventures. And I I was doing 17 adventures a year. So I'd do 10 Kokoda track crossings a year, at wow. least one Kilimanjaro, one Everest base camp every two years. I'd go to Russia. I'd go dog setting up in the Yukon. I'd do five Aussie 10 peaks. That was my adventure counter personally, not just for the company. So I couldn't fit all of that coaching stuff in. Once COVID hit, we found two things. One, I had a bucket load of time and two, the demand was out there. Western okay. society realized how soft we've become. Organizations to their credit started saying, we don't really know how to lead our people through this. What do we learn in the military? We learn how to be calm in the middle of chaos. When we're in battle situations that we've been in, there's two people we don't want to lead us. The most excited person in the room who just loves war and can't wait to get amongst it because he's a little bit too excited, mate. Let's just slow it down a bit. But we don't want the person panicking either. We're looking for the person who's calm. We look to him and go, or her and go, okay, you know, they seem to have a handle on this situation. That's who I want to be led by. Yeah. So therefore, that's how I wanted to lead my team. My team are all under 25. So they're all the same age as my children. And interestingly, they've all said to me, different times in the last 12 months, you're always really calm. And that makes us feel a lot better because we feel like you've got a handle on it. Now, sometimes I don't have a handle on it, but at least I'm thinking about that situation. And the calmer I am, the easier it is to then come up with a solution as opposed to panicking at the end of the day. So that's kind of the whole evolution that got us to this point of the Building Better Humans project. I remember a sergeant telling me while I was at Royal Military College, don't run, it'll scare the horses. I knew exactly what he meant when he said it. And it stuck with me, that particular statement. It was very offhand 
standard statement, but it, it did emphasise exactly what you're talking about. No one wants to be led by the guy that's running around flapping. It's just not helpful. It doesn't steady the ship at all. Look, I've never I, heard that statement, but I love it. That's a good yeah, that's a yeah. good quote. You know, this youth development area that you do, I saw a short video on YouTube, BroCamp. Tell us how BroCamp works and, you know, what it's designed to do and how it helps and maybe for the listeners out there, how they might be able to get their own children or young lads that are in their life, maybe how they can get involved. Yeah, so we kicked off BroCamp in October last year. Basically, it's a work in progress. We're still in what we would call our proof of concept phase. And so that is where we're collecting data, we're seeing how it works, we're adapting. It's for 11 to 17-year-old boys. The first one we ran, 27 boys on it, and it went phenomenally, almost too good for us to go, now we think, like we're the men, like we know how to do this stuff. But every program's been slightly different. We've had challenges. So we ran a few of those and then we have one called Ayella, which is the girls version. And Ayella is an Amazon warrior who defended the princess, you know, in Greek mythology. So we wanted a strong female role model. Again, we revert back to, there's a question we're asking. The problem we're trying to solve is to make men better young men for themselves and for the women in our lives. I've got three daughters. I'm someone, because of what Alyssa's done, being a strong female climbing Mount Everest, and I train a young boxer, Taylor Robinson, who's a year younger than Alyssa, and she's a five-time Australian champion, Commonwealth Games. Yeah, she's impressive. She'll win a world title, that girl. She trains like an animal. I, I see these strong women and I go, there's not a problem for women in today's society. It's way better for them than it was years ago. Since I started running these camps, I've also experienced young girls that have been through sexual assault. Most men listening would be shocked if they asked some women in their life just how many women have yeah. had some sort yeah. of sexual assault or some sort of sexual misconduct happen to them. So then that made me go, well, I don't know that I can solve that problem, of course. I've put 300 young boys through this program and it's just a drop in the ocean. And not all boys are the problem, don't get me wrong. But I'm currently studying a psychology degree. It's not to be a psychologist. I won't do that last year to be a clinical psychologist. It's just because I'm a lifelong learner. But one of the things I learned so far through this is that young men need women in their lives for nurturing. So we need our sisters and our mums and our aunties and girlfriends. That's who nurtures us as men. But we need other men for validation. We will seek that validation from a source that is really good, as in hopefully strong male role models, you know, our, our dads, if that's available to us. Or we'll seek it from our mates who know no more about life than we do. And we make really bad decisions because we need to be accepted and validated as a man into that tribe. Yeah. What we're trying to offer through BroCamp is a different level of validation. Hopefully we, boys around us, are they going, why am I listening to this guy? We are strong alpha males where football players and boxers and soldiers and you know we've got strong men leading them but having really good conversations so effectively what we're doing is personal development at a younger age call it an, an upstream program and it's based off that concept instead of like what I do now is coaching 35 to 45 50 year olds who have kind of lost at life or don't know what the next step is or are going through a midlife crisis and they don't have the tools of resilience they listen to podcasts like us but they don't do anything with it so effectively what that means is there being what we call edutainment. There's education in this podcast, but if I'm just listening to it to be entertained, they call that edutainment. You can read all the books and listen to all the podcasts and not do anything with it, then it's useless. Then what I decided an upstream program would be, instead of pulling these people out of the river at 35, 40, 45, what if we went upstream and found out why they're falling in? What if we gave them better tools at 14, 15, 16? I didn't know if that was possible. And I understand not many people work in the personal development space of youth. I think it's because there's not much money in it. 
this point in time. Whereas you can go into a corporation, as we know, and get paid thousands of dollars. And I'm teaching these kids the same stuff. But my goal is we just become that drop, not even in the ocean, just a drop in a bucket to try and create some sort of ripple effect as the tide rises or boats rise type of concept where we're lifting everyone up by trying to make them better young people. So we run the program in level one, three-day event, so two nights. They camp out, they climb mountains. It's all built on the pillars of fitness mindset adventure again. They go out and experience stuff, so which we call experiential learning. I think adventure is the best personal development in the world. Yeah. The person Alyssa was at 15 when she decided to climb Mount Everest versus the person she was at 19 who climbed Mount Everest are two different people. The 15-year-old version of her wasn't good enough to climb Mount Everest. The version of you or I that joined the military wasn't good enough to go to war. We had to be built into the mm. person that was good enough to handle that. She had to be built into the person that was good enough to climb Mount Everest. Whatever your goal is, anyone listening, you're not good enough to achieve it right now or you already would have done it. So you've got to become good enough. And we're trying to give these young boys those tools. They go into level two. What we've experienced so far is level one, 80% of the kids don't want to be there. Mums and dads have sent them. They drag their butts in and it's kind of like, why do we have to do this? And by the end of it, they want to come back. Then when they come back on a level two, which could be a month later or three months later, they know what we're about and they want to be a part of it. Yeah. We're not teachers talking at them. We're not running a school camp. Every single thing we do, we justify it. We tell them, this is what the intended outcome of this activity is. Sound familiar, right? We learn that in the military. In this lesson, you'll be taught, the reason you're taught this is so that you kind of do a version of that where we go, hey guys, this lesson is all about you digging deep and not quitting. It is going to be hard. It is a physical session. But then we also make them public speak or do other things. Every single person must get up at the end of the program and tell us one thing that you took out of this program that is going to be beneficial for you, one positive. Now, what we're not asking for them to do is validate the program because I don't need their validation and we're trying to teach them not to need validation. What I'm trying to teach them is even if you hated it, I want you to get up and go, I hated this. I wish my mum and dad didn't send me here, but I still want you to find a positive because most people in society cannot find a positive in a negative situation. They just get trapped in the negative. So I said to them, if you can get up and go, I hated every minute of this, but I learned that if you keep persisting, you can achieve something. Well, then you've just taken a positive away and most of society don't have that skill. That's an amazing skill that I wished I had learned at 15, 16, 17. And we're getting some amazing feedback so far. Not that I'm, again, chasing validation per se, but I am looking for, are we achieving the outcomes that we've set for ourselves, which is, is it possible to teach teenagers personal development? And my experience so far tells me it is. So we're yeah, working yeah. with sporting teams. That's easy because they want to win. But we're also going to at-risk schools at the moment. And that's a lot tougher because we're going to schools around the Logan region with kids who've given up hope. And there's nothing sadder than a 15, 16, 17-year-old who believes there's no hope for them because this is our life and this is what we have to deal with. I'm learning more as a 49-year-old than I've probably ever learned in my life. And I'm learning it from teenagers. They don't realize that there's this transfer of energy and information happening between the two of us. And I don't know when that stops for me and I hope never, but that's it's cool. a really interesting process. That's called leadership, you know, energy transfer. Ram, yeah. did you want to jump in? No, no. I'm okay. fascinated. Yeah, it is amazing. I'm really fascinated by this topic and I'm interested to see, you spoke about alphas, ex-soldiers and all of those sorts of people. So what role does masculinity have? There's been a lot of commentary around this at the moment. I really want to hear your thoughts around masculinity and how it's a great this question. makes better humans. <laughs> yeah, it's a good I, question. You are the man. That is a great question. So I've got a real drive at the moment. I hate the term toxic masculinity because I don't think the me two... Too. You can be masculine without being toxic. How ironic you would say me too there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even realise that. Thanks for Hashtag that. Hashtag it. <laughs> it's been done. But, 
but having said that, I'm on a real drive to understand masculinity. So what I try to teach people, and particularly when I'm working with young men, is that you can be tough and still have emotional conversations around stuff. Look, when I was in the military, I was 100% masculine to the point that you don't admit weaknesses, that you know you stand and deliver and you be the man. And the truth is, and you would probably know these stats, but from the age of 14 to 44, as a male, the most likely chance of you dying is at your own hand. And that's a stat that should be alarming to people. The biggest opportunity for people to die in that age group as young men is by themselves, which is terrible. Yeah. Started to chase down my understanding of masculinity because I grew up in a very violent, alcohol-fueled home. My man's a big man. He's bigger than I am today. And we're, we're fine now, but back in those days, as in we're friendly and we can have a chat, but we're not best mates. I was kind of overridden by him. So therefore, I tried to stamp my authority on people. The army likes people like me because I'm looking for belonging and family. And my story is as old as time as people who would yeah. join the military. Yeah. And it gave Got me it. a lot. They love the alpha too. And they love to fuel that because they're trying to build back in our day or my day, young men particularly wanted to go to war because when I first joined, women weren't in field force units and I've got no problem with them being in field force units, but that wasn't the case when I was a young bloke. And so that- What year did you join? 1990. That's when I joined as well. That was a real alpha driven sort of, you know, there was, you would have known at Kapuka, there were still Vietnam vets running around. This old Sergeant Colbert Haldo, he was just as hard as, and he was the old Clint Eastwood type character. (laughs) And I look back at him quite fondly, but the stuff he would come out with, it was just hilarious. You couldn't get away with today, the the stuff that they were doing back then. So, and that was life. And my kid's mum is my ex-wife. We're separated, but we got a good relationship. She joined at the same time. And she's a five foot one blonde female. And here's an example of that, our understanding of, of, of men and women's roles back then. She was a qualified vehicle mechanic. She'd finished her apprenticeship when she joined the army. The army wouldn't let her be a mechanic because mechanic roles back then, you had to be a male. You legitimately, to be in Ramey as a mechanic, you had to be a male. Two years after, she was one of the first five females that were allowed to become mechanics. And this was a big deal. You had to have testicles to use a spanner. That was the, the groundwork that we came and she was qualified. But anyway, back to the masculinity, I started to try and understand our role as tough alpha sort of males to teach other young men that you can be tough and still have emotions and care for other people. I used to have this belief as a young man, if I showed any sort of emotion or softness, that was a weakness. And that was most certainly my household growing up, a weakness that would have been exploited. I learned years later from a good mate of mine who spent a lot of time in the special forces that you can be tough and then you can still have emotions and care about your family and all that sort of stuff but you can turn on that toughness when you need to. So as a fighter, and I'm talking about boxing and everything else, I kind of view that if I start to show that soft side of myself, then I might lose the ability to be strong when that is needed. But that's not true. If someone was to do something to my family, even at my age now, I feel like I could turn on to that warrior side of me that needed to be. T- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Turned on. Now I'm starting to understand masculinity different. I got a book, and this isn't set up, it just happened to be in my bag, called The Mask of Masculinity. It's actually based off a movie which you can download on YouTube for seven bucks, and it's called The Masks We Live In, I think it's called. And it's all about how men are brought up to be tough, to don't cry, don't show emotions. And they interview a lot of soldiers, athletes, high-performing NFL athletes. This is about 10 or 15 years old, this movie, and it goes for about an hour and a half, but it's really powerful to understand our role in the 
fact that we can be tough, but we can also have those conversations. And they do a really good exercise in that movie where they're with a group of school kids. There's a teacher who grew up in the Bronx. He wanted to become a teacher to try and help his own people. He does this exercise where he's got a picture of a face. And I want you to write on the front of that face how you project yourself to the world. I'm strong, I'm this and that. And then on the back of it, he got them to write what they actually feel. And it was about their insecurities and I don't feel worthy. No one else was to read this. But then they screw it up and they throw it around the room and you pick up someone else's piece of paper and you read it. Interestingly, out of the 10 kids or so he had in the class, they all on the front, the mask, had the same thing. They're funny, they're tough, they're popular, they're whatever. And then on the back, they nearly all had the same thing. They feel not good enough. They feel anxious, depressed, scared, which what young man wants to admit being scared? And I thought that was really powerful because they realized everyone in this room almost wrote the same thing. We all feel scared. We all feel not good enough sometimes. And all of us wrote the same thing in that we're all going to be tough and no one's going to push me around and the mask at the front that we wear. So I've just got a real drive now to teach young men that it's okay to be men. I'll give you an example. In this program, we don't have any boxing in the program. In my gym, it's got a full-size competition boxing ring because I train Taylor and some corporate guys. We push these kids really hard. For the men, as in the boys program, we do three hours straight of exercise right at the beginning because I know with men, you've got to lower that testosterone. You've got to absorb them it's a the little bit physically. Boys, as in kids, you know, when yeah, you've got to let they them won't get learn. rid of that male energy. Yeah, yeah. and I just got yep. to burn that off them and I don't have to yep. do that with the girls program. But whenever we give them a break, no matter how hard we push them, they all gravitate towards the boxing ring and they all start punching into each other. The first time <laughs> It happened I kind of the risk assessment side of me went oh and I went down there with the intention said, all right boys out of the ring but when I got there they all looked at me expecting that to happen and I had to make a snap decision wow. which I view as a leadership decision was no I'm not going to stop them what I am going to do is get in there and say to the boys because I've been boxing my whole life boxing is about respect it's not about trying to dominate another human it's about respecting someone so if you hurt someone it's about stepping back because we're talking about the learning of boxing not an actual fight if you get in here no one has to get in here you're choosing to however if you get punched in the face and you will because I've never met a fighter good enough never to be hit so you are going to get punched it is going to hurt you cannot whinge about it because you chose to get in here one young fellow got in every time we had a break no matter how hard we worked them they get in the ring and they're punching the absolute crap out of each other and most of them don't have any particular skill one young fellow had some braces and he split his lip then he was crying and i got him he's 12 years old and it's what happened and i split my lip and i said mate i told you you're going to get hit if you get in there you didn't have to get in there so go and wash your mouth and he was good i had a mum ring me up her son plays for the brisbane lions in the under 16 development squad he's six foot five he's athletic and not all the kids are athletic they're all getting there and he's toweling up all these other kids. This young Aboriginal kid gets in who can fight and he says, I'll have a crack at him and he's half his size and he rolls a right hand over and drops the big kids flat on his back. Mum rings me up and says, uh, I was talking to Samuel, telling me that he got knocked flat on his back in the boxing ring and he's weirdly excited by telling me this. He seemed really happy about it. And I said, yeah, he's just a boy being a boy. And we talked about that and we put up some videos of some of the boys and I just talked about that experience on my Instagram and we had a couple of women contact us and go, this is where the rape culture starts with this boys will be boys attitude. And well, hang on a minute, that's mm-hmm. actually not the case. So when we're saying, I get that people have owned boys will be boys, as in, you know, when they make a rude comment to a woman or when they do something they shouldn't, we go, that's boys being boys. Well, that's not the case. But boys wanting to express themselves in a physical way, we've got to stop discouraging that because what's happening in my actual experience is we've got all these young men who come into this program and they don't know where it's safe to outlet that energy. They're confused. And we, yep. we've got to give them the safe space to still outlet that energy. We have to do that for them. We can't totally try and transform 
transform them into a female energy because whether we like it or not, there is a difference. And I know that now because I've put over 300 boys through this program and I've put about 120 girls through the girls version of the program and there are definite differences yep. and we're looking at getting different outcomes and we're not trying to stop either of them from being who they are. And so that to me is what that whole masculinity piece is about. Yeah, Glenn, it seems to me that the elephant in the room is the fact that testosterone drives boys, drives men. I just got my bloods done yesterday and I get it done every year and I've watched this steady drop of testosterone <laughs> over the years, except for maybe one or two years, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> and so it seems to I'm joking. Wow. Before I get a million <laughs> bloody emails here. And I've, you know, like Captain Cook was 18 or some ridiculous, you know, Matthew Flinders, like we're talking young men yeah. going and seeking adventure and looking, you know, so there's conquering back in the day. Yeah. There's, there's adventure, there's exploration, it's testosterone driven. And now what we want to do is say, let's all ignore the fact that we're driven by this drive to procreate. We're driven by this drive to endure and seek more. And yet now we've got whole generations of people that are just stopped in their tracks and being mm. told, just sit there like a vegetable. You know, it's not going to fly. We can't have societies like yeah. that. We need to find ways to outlet. It's not just the energy. It's, it's the chemical imbalances. It also damages our community resilience as well. If we don't have these masculine energies that are adventurous, it's not just the boys either. You know, the girls, mm. we need adventurous girls as well. It's actually impacting on community resilience. Not to mention personal resilience as well, Glenn. I'm going to make a stand here. I very rarely go on one side or the other with stuff. Toxic masculinity is a crock of shit. It's being created by leftards who want to hold us to account things that they can't control. And at the end of the day, masculinity is a beautiful thing and we teach men to be stronger, bigger, fitter, faster to protect our nation and everything. We need to give them outlets to explore their energy and their masculinity that are resourceful or they'll do it unresourcefully. You can try and sweep this under the carpet, but they will go and try and seek that outlet in some other way and we want to try and empower our young men to challenge themselves in a resourceful way in a helpful way otherwise you're going to continue to see these behaviours that are happening towards women and, and whatnot and it, mm. and it definitely does happen don't get me wrong but I agree I just think there are some people that are toxic but I don't think you can put it into all males the same as you can't put something into yeah. all races you've got to have you a little be, bit more you can be masculine without being toxic yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like a Absolutely. toxic person's a dickhead yeah. there's just dickheads out there there's people out there who are just <laughs> cockheads just be a good human I, I mean, you look. Let's talk boxing. You look at someone like Anthony Joshua. He's not out there raping people, and he's one of the biggest people on the planet, and the best fighter on the planet, probably pound for pound. Well, if you look, well, at we'll it, wait and see. We'll wait and see if that's true or not when he gets in the ring. I think Tyson <laughs> Fury beats him, but that's another conversation. I don't know. I'm going to wager a bet on this. Yeah. My business for your business. <laughs> well, easy, this easy, is- Tiger. <laughs> Yeah, fair call. <laughs> I own mine on my own. <laughs> Boxing's my background and I love it. Um, there's just something about Tyson Fury that I enjoy. And I think Anthony Joshua, and I know we're on a slightly different topic here, but he's a physical specimen. He's a scientific specimen. But there are things inside a sport like boxing that requires more than the scientific. And I'll give you a really quick example because this has happened to us in a, our personal life. There was this guy that reached out to Alyssa years ago. He wants to put together this scientific-based strength and conditioning program for her. She's 18, nearly 19, I think. And she's a few months away from climbing Mount Everest. She goes and trains with him. I can tell straight away it's not resonating with her because yeah. just didn't seem comfortable she's pretty quiet she did like six weeks 
with this guy. Eventually, she said, I just don't feel like I'm being pushed hard enough. There was no mental edge. When she's trained with people, like over the years, she's trained with all different variety of people, special forces guys particularly, and Keith Fennell being the main one. It was about putting mini Everest moments inside a workout. Now, there wasn't necessarily a scientific reason for doing that. There was an understanding that your life is going to be on the line at some point, and can you keep going? It's it's about having that. This guy didn't understand that. So she just decided that I'm not going to train with him. I said to her, you need to have that conversation face-to-face with him. That's not a text message. She went and told him. He's then contacted me and said, uh, are you aware of Alyssa's decision? I said, yeah, I am. He said, well, you know, do you agree with it? Like, and I said, look, she's an adult. She's the one that's got to put her life on the line. If she's not getting confidence from training with you, then she needs to go another way, which she did. Anyway, she successfully summits Everest. There are two special forces guys, one from two commando and one from the SS that worked with her at different points through that. Neither of them commented once she successfully summited publicly. They just messaged her and said, good on you. The only person that commented was this one guy who put up this post and said, client of mine. And she trained with him for six weeks. She hadn't trained with him for months leading up to that climb and he was claiming it and he was putting paid advertising up saying that he had been the reason she succeeded basically and people were commenting saying mate you're amazing there's no way that she could have done that without you. Being me I reached out and said to him mate you've got to have some integrity around the way you do things and at the end of the day you can't put those posts up let alone paid posts. He said to me are you saying the six weeks she trained with me didn't help her and I said well yeah I am kind of saying that because she's been training for 12 years and she's been doing this for a long time and she's climbed mountains all around the world so it's not that six week block. He said he wasn't going to take it down and so unfortunately for him she was sponsored at the time by a lawyer decision was changed fairly quickly but the point is that he had the integrity or the lack of integrity to go out and talk about that and sometimes in my belief training isn't just about the scientific some people know how to do everything by their heart rate but you get them outside of the gym outside of a 45 minute session and they don't have the ability to dig in I've taken professional athletes away on adventures and they're far physically fitter than I am and yet they're struggling and I'm carrying as heavy a pack I'm doing I know we've done it for years but we also understand that the military puts us in a situation where you just got to do what you've got to do. I've been on Kokoda with personal trainers that are ripped six packs. In two or three days in, they're starting to whinge because I'm not getting enough grams of protein. Whereas we just can live on nothing if that's what we're given because that's the only option that are given to us. They don't have that level of resilience. My belief, to circle that back around, I think Tyson Fury's probably got a bit more of that mongrel in him than Joshua. Yeah. And I love both of them. Joshua can punch, but every time he's put in a situation where he thinks someone might beat him, like Joseph Parker, he takes mm. his foot off the gas and he just cruises through. Other than mm. obviously when he fought Klitschko, which was a phenomenal fight and he had to come back from war. Yeah, but he wasn't, wasn't the favourite back then. He was kind of no. still trying to prove himself. Once he became favoured, he started to just play a bit safer, which didn't always work for him. Uh, let's go back to masculinity in a minute. Double down on what you're talking about around how scientific edge doesn't always lead to an optimal outcome. I'm not saying that Channel 7's SAS Who Dares Wins <laughs> is anything close to the Carter course or to Commando's collection course. However, you see Merrick Watts. He's a comedian and there he is standing there at the end with the honey badger who's trained in things that have made him resilient his whole life. Yeah. grew up in a resilient but people don't know the backs of Merrick either and, and the way he was brought up and, and how tough that you know how he, how he how it was a tough you know it was an upbringing that might have been blue collar but was tough enough yeah. um, and he's a tough person and he's got mongrel in him you know yeah. so um, yeah and the the girl who was standing there as well the um, the AFL player what's her name does anyone remember I actually never watched the show I can, I can google that yeah but she was um, she was phenomenal as well yeah yeah, I never watch the show, unfortunately. But I don't watch a lot of commercial TV. And it's mm-hmm. not, I'm not some guru sitting on a mountaintop that says you don't do that. I just don't have time. Yeah. I'm legitimately yeah, um, too busy all the time to fit it in. But it's something I've wanted to go back and stream and just have a look at out of interest. So, Sabrina Frederick? Right. Yeah, it sounds, that, sounds yeah, right. Yeah, the, the Aussie, Aussie Rules player. She was just, yeah, just brilliant. Yeah. 
Hey, um, I, you know, Glenn, I, I joked earlier um, during the podcast about you being an overnight success, and uh, and you've spoken you've spoken about this uh, in other forums. What, what's your definition of success? That's a really good question. So, you know, I've done a bit of work under, with Brendan Bouchard, who, who wrote the High Performance Habits, as in directly with him years ago before he was as big as he is now, and he talks about high performance. Um, and success typically being something that's achieved over the long term. So we can be successful at a thing, but to have true success to me is being able to do it over the long term. Now, if you'd asked me that question pre-COVID even, I would have thought success was largely about money um, because, you know, we're always trying to build and grow. And, and COVID's taught me that success for me personally, and it's different for us, is about impact. It's about how many people am I able to impact. And I'm on a bit of a drive at the moment of how do I make personal development affordable and accessible for people now i want to make a living don't get me wrong i like making money but i'm also working a lot in spaces of people who absolutely can't afford it i think if done correctly the kokoda track is one of the most life-changing experiences people can go through if done correctly if the story is told well the military history the connection with the local people if you're not just doing it for a cash grab i think it's the best thing people can do but the people who need it the most can't afford mm. it and so i'm currently working with some people around how do we build a process to get grants to take some of these young kids away from really tough backgrounds so that they get the level of life-changing experience that, that I think every human deserves? And so it's about making it accessible and affordable. And we don't know what the answer to that yet is, but we've got the question. And when you've got a high-quality question, you'll come up with the answer at some point. So for me, success is going to be about impact. And then it'll sound wanky, but it is what it is. It's, you know, eventually I view it this way. You know, you've heard that quote, um, by Jim Rohn about we are the sum of the five people we hang around or the product of. Well, I think of it this way. If I could get a thousand people from the other side of the tracks who are doing it really tough and I can impact them positively, each one of them is going to have five people they interact with and they might be able to raise the standard of those five people. Now you're talking about an impact of 5,000 people. Well, those 5,000 people have five people and so the, that, that math keeps going on. So is it entirely possible from someone of my background of, you know, you're not famous or any of that sort of stuff. Is it possible for me to impact a million people in my lifetime? I think it is. And so success for me is little situations like we spoke about before we started recording, I think, where I was at a talk with, um, with a group of real estates at a pub, um, like in a back room, and a 21-year-old girl who's working at the pub came and said to me, oh, I'm having a fan moment. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, I came to a talk that you did. I'm in my third year of teaching. I'm about to go out into teaching next year. And you did a talk about how to engage young boys. And as a young female, I couldn't work out how I was going to be able to do that. And your talk changed all these things about the way I think about things and it's stuff I hadn't learned in uni. That's impact. That was a pretty cool moment to sit yeah. and have that conversation with a 21-year-old who, who knows, like teaching is one of the best and the most underrated, but one of the most effective forms of impact in the world because they're dealing with our future generation. And I mentor a lot of teachers mm. and they literally are stuck in a system that's just about numbers and they hate it because they join a professional like teaching to make a difference and they're not getting to do that. And mm. so if we're able to help them in some way, that's impact. Those are cool moments. That's to me is success. It's not about me personally being on TV or, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind doing any of that sort of stuff, but it's not about that. I'm at an age where I don't care about people going, oh, you're amazing. You're the fittest guy in the gym because I'm not anymore. And I've got injuries and I'm dealing with all those, but they know I'll turn up and they'll know that I'll, we have a saying within our crew um, and it's actually written on the back of these shirts even that how you do anything is how you do everything. 
And we're really big on that. Every every little thing that you don't do well, every shortcut that you take because you think no one's watching, well, that's how you'll probably do everything. When you're put under pressure, you're going to take a shortcut too. And I don't care if it's out in the military, if it's on a footy field, if it's in your business, you will take a shortcut because that's who you are. That's the habit that you formed for yourself. So you won't just do it. In boxing, we, we term it as in the ring, the truth will always find you. And what it means is you can do the work, you can look fit, you can make weight. But if you've taken shortcuts in training, when you end up in a fight that's a dog fight, and that will happen to everyone at some point, you know in the back of your mind that you took some shortcuts. And knowing that, you're going to give yourself an out in that fight most likely because the other guy or girl just wants it more than you. And you start to think, maybe they didn't take the shortcuts I did. How you do anything is how you do everything. So success for me mm. is impact. It's living to the values that I sprout. It's not just talking about them, it's living to them. And it's being willing to brutally self-assess to the point that if I'm not good enough, I just own it and go, mate, not good enough, you need to be better. My goal in life is that you could never expect more from me than I expect from myself. So if you're disappointed in me, I can guarantee I'm already more disappointed in myself. That's the standard that I like to operate at and bring all my young blokes up. The next level of success for me is sometime in the next 11 years, so before I turn 60, I want to develop these young people under me to the point where one of them taps me on the shoulder and says, mate, we feel like you've taken the Building Better Humans project as far as you can and we're kind of ready to take over. I hope that happens sooner rather than later because then you know that you've truly developed um, a long-term impact that's long past my name. So Building Better Humans project shouldn't be about Glen Azar. It should be about Building Better Humans. And I talked about that on a podcast recently with someone and one of my young guys, Jaden Nicarima, who's 24 and an absolute weapon, he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, I want to be that guy. Good. I want you to be that guy too. So now you need to work out how to be that guy. What do you need to do? What's the standard you need to operate at? I've built my team already into such a strong, powerful young team that I would be too scared to lower my standards because they will eat me alive they're the young lions and lionesses that mm. i look out there and i go man they're impressive i wish i was like that at 24 that to me is leadership too often we make leadership about ourselves mm. literally none of it should be about us yeah that's a great observation um is there any difference between personal success and professional success do you think i think too often we're searching for work-life balance and i don't think it exists phil DeBella, the coffee guy told me years ago that he believes in work-life harmony and that means that sometimes to be successful we've got to be really out of whack like obviously for us if we're deployed for eight nine months there's no balance in that and we have to be fully in that moment we have to be where our feet are or people die effectively and and the wrong people and then when we get home though we need to be fully with the people that we're at home with. And then that's the same in a business context. On a day-to-day, -day, on a week-to-week, -week, you're not going to have balance. But when you are home, and that means if you've got an hour with your kids or whatever, make it a real high-quality hour. Make it an hour where the phone's not there, where you're actually sitting down having conversations. To me, those two things have to live hand-in-hand hand because life is life. People could talk about work-life. Well, it's all life. So at the end of the day, this is my experience. If you're unhappy at home, you're going to drag that into your work life anyway. And if you're unhappy at work, you're going to drag that back into your home life and you're going to keep dragging this ball around that's just going to get bigger and bigger. And we've got to learn how to contextualize between the two. What I teach people is what we call clearing tension and setting the intention. Before I walk in the front door at home, rather than just walk straight in and start spouting about how crap my day was and you don't know how their day was. So my intention when I walk through the front door is to spend the first hour not talking about my day or myself at all, talking about to the kids, talking to my partner, talking to whoever, just turning the conversation to them. Because I was talking to, and I don't know if you've got him on your radar, but you definitely should talk to Dan Cooper on the podcast. So Dan's an 18 years in the SAS, 22 years in the military. So it's a long career in the SAS. He set up the human performance cell over there and he's got a passion for it. He's now doing a PhD in that. And his PhD specifically, it won't be 
published. It's around building the psychology of warfighters and how we can predict that. And so he's a really interesting guy. But what he actually is studying, his PhD and his degrees are in human performance. And so he's got this really eclectic brain to think about how we do things. And he said to me once that when you come home and you've got children who are under the age of 10, they don't understand work. So if you come home with attention from work and you're upset or you're angry, their natural assumption is that you were happy out there because they just assume you're out there with your mates doing mate stuff like they do. And then when you've come home, you're unhappy. They assume that that's because of them because that's the only thing that's changed in their mind. And when he told me that, I thought, well, that's actually really powerful. So I now become really conscious with how I walk into my house. It's only my youngest daughter left at home now who's 13. But you know, when I walk into the house, I'm really conscious with how I interact with her. We have a space in our lounge room, kitchen, dining. It's all open plan where our phones go. And she can still use her phone in that room, but she has to go and stand next to it to use it. And that's really kind of makes it obvious that you're separating yourself from the crowd. So she next to doesn't use it, but I have the same standard for myself. So I think they have to, personal professional success, have to live hand in hand. Because if you've got really high success in one area, but not in another, you're not actually a high performer. You know, that's my personal belief. So I'm trying to find that high performance in both fields. I know people that have been, you know, special forces guys who have no understanding of how to put that success across into other areas of their life. So 10, 15 years after getting out, they're doing drugs, alcohol, and still talking about their time in the military. But what have you done since then? I once spoke to Mark Donaldson. Uh, on my podcast and maybe off air or on air, I can't remember, it was a few years ago, he said, in 20 years time, I don't want to just be telling the VC story. If I do that, then I've just wasted 20 years. My life has to be about more than that. And so I think true high performance is having the ability to overlay that in other areas of your life, which means being good in your personal life as well as being good in your professional life. I deal with people that are making billions of dollars, or not billions, but you know, making big buckets of money, are really successful, say, in real estate, but they're 30 kilos overweight and they barely talk to their yeah. kids. And I'm thinking, they can't view that as success, surely. Yeah, absolutely. So what does it... I guess we're maybe laboring the point a bit, but I'm really interested in it because, you know, what characteristics does it take for a for a person to be successful in their personal and, and professional lives, you, you know, in your opinion? So for me, it's about understanding your values. So understanding what drives you. I do a values-based exercise with any client I work with, and it's a really good exercise to work out what you actually value. Because when you understand your values, you can live consciously to them rather than subconsciously, which is where you're just kind of being pushed around by whatever's happening. So to me, to be considered successful personally and professionally is understanding what makes you happy, what are you good at, how do you make an impact on other people. I actually write a note in my, I've got like old school, I use a handwritten diary still when I'm, and for work and stuff. And I'll write in there, one of the things I always write is who do I intend to impact today? And I look for people to impact. And it could be the kids or it could be the barista that I'm grabbing a coffee from just by having a different conversation than they used to. So for me personally, it's about understanding your values, living to those values because otherwise all the money in the world isn't going to make you happy. And we've all been in that experience where we've earned 50 grand and we go to 70 and we think it's a lot and all of a sudden it's not enough. And then you go to 100 and it's not enough. And the truth is it'll never be enough if you're not understanding what drives you. My business due to COVID mostly, isn't doing what it used to do as far as the dollars figure, but I'm doing a lot more soulful work in the sense of Brocamp and Ayala, and I feel better most of the time. I'm getting more time at home with the kids. I was actually spending more time away from home the last few years than I was when I was in the military, and I was doing it of choice. And I was being driven by ego, as in people want me to take them to Kokoda. I've done 79 of them now. I'm the man. And isn't it more important to be the man for my children? So understand your values, be willing to live to them consciously, and find out how you can make an impact in the world, your world, not the whole world necessarily, but even in your world, the people in it, by living to those values. To me, that's what makes success at the end of the day. 
so many people are making the money they always thought they wanted to make and they feel unfulfilled. I deal with people in their 40s who literally come to me, so my age, our ages, who will say to me, like, I just, I've had people legitimately say this, I don't even know what I'm passionate about. And I'm like blown away. How can you not know that? I think it's there, but it's so buried down because I've just been doing the do with no great concept of why and understanding that or believing that the extra 20 grand is going to make all the difference and it never makes a difference. The extra garage is going to make the difference. The newer car is going to make the difference. None of it really makes a difference if you're not happy. I'm now in a situation where I don't feel materialistic Mm. about things. I like stuff. But if I don't have stuff, I'm okay too. And I feel like I'm making a bigger impact. I spend whole weekends not sleeping, out trekking mountains with you know 20 or 30. We just did a program yesterday for 67 boys from a local state high school rugby league excellence program. And we had them for 30 hours and you're awake and, you're, and I leave there feeling fantastic because you have this impact on these young guys. And we get them all to public speak at the end. And this young kid got up and we just said, what did you take out of it to everyone? They wanted to get up and I'm just looking for his quote here. He just got up and said, I learned that tank isn't empty if I'm still standing. And I thought, well, I don't know if it's his original quote, if he wrote it or if he came up with it, but I thought, what a cool thing for a 16-year-old to learn, that the tank isn't empty if I'm still standing. And I put that on Instagram because I thought, that's a cracking lesson. So for me now, success for me is I feel like I'm walking in purpose without sounding wanky. I feel like I'm making an impact to people that desperately need that impact to be made. And I feel like I'm living to my own personal values because I understand them. So it's a conscious decision to live to them every day. Yeah, that's great. We talk about um, personal reflections and reflecting on our own personal leadership styles at Hindsight Leadership. And I think, you know, we're talking about the same concepts here about understanding your own personal values and understanding your own backgrounds in order to understand the type of leader you are. And I think it's what you're saying is that, you know, to be a successful human, not just a successful leader is, you know, the same combination of personal reflection and personal understanding. Yeah, I like to do a brutal self-assessment and not brutal in the sense that I beat myself up, but brutal in the sense that I'm really honest with myself and I know when I'm not good enough and we all do. But rather than try and excuse it and blame someone else and deny it, the usual below-the-line thinking stuff, I look at going, okay, why did I make that decision? What could I do differently or better next time? And then make sure I actually do something differently or better next time. That's literally my goal in life all the time. And I'm really comfortable with feedback, you know. And I think us in the military, we come from that background because we deal in life and death. And when someone says, mate, that's shit, we don't view you as attacking me. We just go, okay, well, what do I need to do better? That's the feedback. But when I've got out in the civilian world, people hate feedback because they view it as a personal attack. And maybe it's that they don't trust their leadership or the intention of the communication. And if that's the case, that's a problem for them. But also we just try and sugarcoat feedback so then neither side ends up happy because we're not getting the result that we want. And I've just learned through life to take feedback. And it's not always, not all feedback's equal. I always ask myself the question, who are you and what have you done? Why am I listening to you? And if there's something about you that resonates with me or you've achieved something, cool, then I'll take your advice. But as an example, I wouldn't ask my parents for business advice because I've never owned one. You know, So I look at who do I take advice from? Yep. I'm not going to take leadership advice from someone that has no track record of leadership, whereas you guys have got a track record of leadership in the most extreme circumstances. So it makes sense for a business person to go, well, that's who I'll go to for leadership advice because you've come from and I've come from a leadership in the most extreme version which is where people's lives are on the line, there has to be a message in that for people whose business is on the line or whose sporting results are on the line. You know, yeah. That's who I want to take advice from, not someone who's just well-read on the subject. Yeah, right. I appreciate that. Look, I've probably got one more question. I'm not sure about Bram, but I've often seen images of you with your T-shirt, hashtag not dead yet, and <laughs> I love it. Tell us about your philosophy. That's a really interesting one. So I kind of view it from the concept, two different concepts. One is 
again, dropping Christian to school with all of the kids there, and he's one of the better ones, and I think they would swap their absolute best day for our worst at the drop of the hat if they had the understanding of it. And then the other part of that concept was that with us being in the military, we've got, we know or have been touched by plenty of people that haven't made it to this stage in life through whatever means, whether they've killed in battle, whether they've taken their own life. And I just kind of had this idea that we owe it to people not here yet to live the best version of ourselves. So we do what we do because we're not dead yet. People go, why do you climb a mountain? Because I'm not dead yet, because I've got the ability to go and do that. And so I just wanted to encourage people. Now, I was over on Kokoda a couple of years ago, and I know all the other Kokoda truck operators. This company's much bigger than us. And this guy came the other way, pulled me up, and he said, mate, I always love all of your branding and stuff, but I'm not about that not dead yet. I don't get it. I think it's disrespectful because soldiers were killed over there. Now, he's not got any military background. It's just a business for him. And I said, well, I totally disagree with you. It's it's actually paying homage. It's honoring people that aren't with us yet. Jeez. That why would I dare waste my life when someone else didn't get to live to this stage of life? I feel like that's a disrespect to people that aren't here anymore. I was on Kokoda. I'm going to say, this is before I come up with Not Dead Yet, maybe six years ago, I went over to Bamana War Cemetery. If you haven't been there, it's in Port Moresby. It's the biggest Australian war cemetery in the world. It's just Australians. It's over 4,000 Australians buried there. It's the largest yeah, war have, cemetery yeah. in the southern hemisphere. It's a phenomenal place. One time when I went over there, there was an A4 page that was laminated next mm-hmm. to a grave. And the guy in the grave had passed away at the age of 20. And his mate was the same age as him. And his mate had written a letter and included photos of his whole life. And he was 80 or 90. I can't remember. And in that, he had just written about everything that happened in his life. And he left it at his mate's grave. And he wrote on the back end of it that everything I've done in my life has been in honor of knowing that you didn't get to do that. So it's kind of living for him as well. And that was where the whole not dead yet idea came into my head is that mm. we owe it to people. Yeah. Like I worked for a little while at childhood cancer support. I watched kids from three to 13 passing away from the most horrendous disease. And then I see 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 year olds struggling with, oh, my life's really hard at the moment. And you go, come on, like you've got the ability to change. Whereas these kids didn't even get that opportunity there. I had a girl on Ayala camp maybe a month ago who had a brain tumor at the age of four and has only got 20% vision left in her left eye because it was on her left optic nerve. She had another brain tumor at the age of eight in the middle of her head. And now she's got one on her, just in behind her right ear. She had 52 weeks, no, 56 weeks straight of chemo, which is out of control. They haven't been able to reduce the size of this thing, but nor can they operate on it. But at the moment, it's not growing. This kid had the most positive, upbeat attitude of anyone I've ever met. And she's 14 years of age. And yet at the same time, you can listen to someone else when you say, oh, my life's really hard and I've got all these challenges and you don't wow. understand what I'm going through. And you go, come on. So not dead yet to me is about honouring people that haven't been given the luxury or the privilege of living a long life, which at 49, I don't want to die anytime soon. Yeah. But if I do, I'd like to at least go away with the knowledge that I've I've wrung the juice out of this thing as best I can. Yeah, that's great. That's a great... Um sort of viewpoint and put a few people in their places. Uh, I, for one, am sick and tired of um, people jumping on me when I put something mentally tough or mentally fit or when I do something positive um, on Instagram or whatever. Just a shout-out to all those people. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Um, So, for instance, um, you know, I put this thing up there a while ago, you know, the the formula for mental toughness. And, you know, someone jumped on it and they were like, oh, you know, it's all well and good, but when someone's struggling and then you've got this equation for mental toughness out there, it's just another stab when they're they're feeling hurt and no longer good enough. And I'm like, you know what? Everything's relative. And if I'm telling a whole heap of people how to be mentally tougher and now you – and you feel that you are – you know, you don't agree with that at that point in time, then go and get some support and help. Mm. But don't – do you know what I mean? Like I, I just I hate the how we always have to sink 
we always have to sink down to, you know, let's tiptoe around people because there's people out there who who are struggling mentally. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I get I that. I saw some people some support for your mental fitness. I saw that post, and you know, some people were quoting the, the about the actual day, equation. There's still toughness. Yeah, I saw some people quoting about the actual mathematical equation or something. I'm thinking, like, you've put way too much thought into this. You're, you're <laughs> yeah. looking for a negative in the middle of this thing. It makes no sense to me. But I – look, I typically ignore those people because I just couldn't be – Well, well, Glenn, Glenn, what they don't know is um, I have a client and that client has a PhD in maths <laughs> and, and I sat down with them and we worked it out. So the person that they're – that they're actually arguing with is not me. <laughs> it's a person with a PhD in mathematics. But, you know, whatever. Whatever fills you. Fills you but back. you're right. Like, I put up a post recently yeah. about, um, I can't remember, about something about, you know, it's the way you think about a problem more than the problem itself. And some guy got in there and said, uh, it's easy for you to say, I don't know him, but he said, it's easy for you to say, you've got no idea what I've been through. And I thought about it. I don't normally respond, but I wrote back and said, well, that's actually true. I don't know what you've been through, but nor do you know what I've been through, obviously. But I'm not saying that anyone's pain is worse or harder than anyone else's pain. But let me tell you a quick story. And I told him the story in my in public about the young girl with the brain tumours. And interestingly, when I woke up the next morning, he deleted his post. <laughs> so it's all about context, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't get, yeah. I never get, I, I never get a kick out of pulling people no. up, you know, socially. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, there, okay, I, I admit there's, a, there's such a thing as toxic positivity mm. and perhaps I'm a little bit too positive for some people's liking. Um, and so that's an area for me to develop and to work out more ways to be empathetic through perhaps not being positive in every situation, <laughs> all right? But you have to remember, guys like you, myself, Trent, we've survived because we've been positive and we've, we've bounced from, from thing to thing where we've had to reset and go, I can get through this. And when I get through this, it'll all be good, you know? And in some regards, that has been um, difficult for me to, to not live like that after the military. Yeah. I mean, I've been in harrowing circumstances where I didn't know if I was going to see the fucking daylight yeah. the next day, but but and and that has a profound effect on yeah. you. And so when I when I say, hey, here's a here's a formula for mental toughness, yeah, take some notice of someone who's been there, and okay, and guess what? If you are fragile for some other reason, you know, go and go and see a psychologist because I'm not one. It's little things. I'm just going to motivate ninety percent of the population to be better than they were yesterday. Yeah, the other thing is you get <laughs> you to know, choose I, who you really follow. Got my so why they if you haven't worked us. it out, it triggered me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think, why are people? But shout out to that why guy. Why are they following us yeah. if they're not into this stuff too? Like I look at, um, I look, I look yeah. at the podcast ratings, and you'll you'll have a handful of one, two, and three stars. And I think, why are you listening to it? If you don't like it, like if I start listening to a podcast and I don't like it, I move on immediately. I don't, I don't bother going. Well, I should go and rate that guy because screw him. Like I just got better things to do with my life. Yeah, I mean, I've given yours like fifty one star reviews <laughs> over the years from different accounts. You know. <laughs> I've never had negative feedback from a successful person because what a successful person will do will go, mate, I reckon you could, what about this? Or they'll give you suggestions and feedback to try mm-hmm. and be better, but they'll never come in and just bomb you about how shit you were. That's not how successful people operate. So as soon as I get negative feedback, mm-hmm. I go, clearly that person's not achieving anything that interests me or or hasn't done. So it's easier to throw shade at people than it is to actually go out and achieve something yourself because it's hard work to achieve stuff. It's hard work to put yourself out there and say, I'm going to be the best version of myself possible and I'm going to get it wrong sometimes, but I'm working to yeah. get it right. That, that's actually hard work. Yeah, Glenn, thanks very much for talking with us today. Really appreciated your opinions around you know success and 
resilience and all of the other areas that we've spoken about. I really, really appreciate it. And um, thanks for your time. No worries, boys. Thanks for inviting me on. Like I said, I've been watching the potty for a while and, Bram, obviously I've seen a bit of your work, so it was nice to finally connect with you guys. Thanks, man. And building better humans is such a great um, such a great idea and I've just been having a look through the podcast um, page and also the new website. And the, the website looks amazing, mate, so hopefully that will go from strength to strength for you and you know, be watching uh, with keen interest in the future when you hand it down to the next person <laughs> in line and, and keep it going as a legacy. So uh, kudos to you, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much for listening, gang. Our pre-recording producers are the amazing team at Talent and Truth. Special thanks to Sabine and Samantha. Caitlin Swallow as our post-production editor. Thanks to Jess Bunker for research. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. There's a weekly blog on the Warrior U website and a fortnightly newsletter that you can sign up to at hindsightleadership.com. That's all one word. Thank you for listening to the Warrior U podcast presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.